Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Is social media harming teenagers? And if so, what can we do about it? Those are questions at the heart of a recent report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. This is an advisory group tasked by Congress with providing guidance on science-related issues. Uh, Joining us for the first part of this program, Doug Gentile, Distinguished Professor of Psychology at Iowa State University. He is a member of the committee behind this report. Hello, Doug. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm doing fine. Nice to have you back on the program. Uh, this is a an examination of current research about social media's effects on mental and physical health of young people. We want to invite listeners to join us, especially if you, um, as a young person or years ago, uh, have um, had um, sort of challenges dealing with social media. Uh, perhaps uh, you considered yourself um, addicted to social media. What did you do about it? Uh, what has been the impact on you or a member of your family or a friend? Or just a question for Doug, 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Doug, later I want to ask about your specific contributions to sections in this report, uh, I believe on addiction, problematic use, um, also on education and training for teachers and physicians. But let's start off with a broad look. Uh, tell us about your committee and what you were asked to do. Yeah. Uh, this is the first time I've been on a National Academy of Sciences uh, committee, and so it, it, it was very interesting to see. First of all, they brought together about a dozen experts, but none of us were expert in the same thing, which uh, kind of surprised me because uh, I'm more used to you get together <laughs> a bunch of people who all study the same thing. But instead, there were, you know, if we wanted to talk about education, there was someone in the room with that expertise. Talk about the law. There was someone in the room with that expertise. Talk, talk about sleep or, or physical health. You know, everyone had different expertise, uh, which made it really uh, much more wide ranging than if they'd brought in a, a panel of people who just specifically uh, study uh, all the same things. And it's also a consensus report. So we had to uh, come to you know, full consensus about what the state of the science was. And scientists are pretty conservative uh, <laughs> about these things. So uh, uh, it, it ends up being, uh, I think, a fairly wide-ranging and interesting uh, report of, you know, here is what, as far as we, you know, the state of the science is today, we can say with some uh, certainty. And, you know, in short, you know, first of all, one of the things is there are valid reasons to be concerned. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the science does say that. Uh, but it also says we're not powerless. Uh, there are steps that we can take as a country to maximize the benefits and minimize the harms. And uh, another you know, big picture uh, issue that comes out of it is that the uh, when we're talking about social media, they're not monolithic. They aren't one thing. They aren't used the same way by all people. Uh, the effects actually can be different on different uh, groups of people, it seems. Uh, and so uh, it's hard to come up with, if not impossible, a one-size-fits-all answer. Mm. Well, okay. And we want to, I think, throw this in here too, as well. 
In your committee, you were not charged with coming up with recommendations for parents, though we will include that as part of our conversation a little bit later on, right? Yeah, this is a, a, you know, a governmental body that is trying to inform other governmental agencies uh, about what could be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's not uh, down to the level of what, you know, what can parents do, although I think we can certainly extrapolate <laughs> some of those okay. answers from it. All right. Okay. Broadly speaking, and given that there was a, a big uh, scope in, in this report, how would you characterize the findings of, of your report, uh, what you contributed and what your colleagues did? Sure. Well, uh, I think one of the things that uh, comes out of it is, again, given that they aren't monolithic, there are some real benefits uh, that come from social media. You know, the first is so obvious, most people probably won't think of it as a scientific benefit, but being entertained. Uh, There's really nothing wrong with uh, being entertained by the media. Uh, but then some things that are more specific to social media is that you know people report uh, that it's useful for social connection. I think most of us have had that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, teenagers in particular also use it as a way of trying to establish social capital. Uh, how many friends do they have or how many likes do they get? Uh, uh, it can combat isolation, especially. Uh, Especially, this may be important for certain groups of marginalized teens. Uh, we can uh, come up with a couple examples like uh, neurodivergent uh, teens who may feel uh, you know, different from everyone else, but online they can meet others like them. Or uh, gay teens who, again, maybe uh, they don't have a, a, a strong social network in their high school, but in fact they can find others so that they stop feeling like, oh, I'm the only one like this. Uh, so that's, that's re- I think, a really useful and important uh, aspect of it. Obviously, we can learn through them. We can uh, express ourselves through them. Uh, we can uh, create, and you know, if, you, if you post uh, your own videos or songs or pictures or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and civic engagement is also another place a uh, real benefit of social media for, for teens. So we want to make sure that we're not uh, saying, oh, social media are bad. No, there are real uh, potential benefits. But at the same time, there are also possibilities for real harm. These include things like, uh, you know, the first one is just displacement. It's not just what are you learning from the social media, what are you not doing? And given the amount of time that the average teen spends on their devices, all that time, they're not doing homework, they're not creating, they're not reading, they're not engaging with others in the real world, they're not spending time with their families, they're not sleeping. They're, I mean, there's lots of benefits that they're just missing because of all the time spent on social media. But mm-hmm. then are also a lot of social media designed to you know, try to um, hook your attention. And uh, there are uh, you know, there are certainly studies that show with more time on media, uh, attention problems tend to go up because it's basically like all, you know, the media are designed to kind of support you just going along. So you don't have to strengthen your own attentional muscle, uh, at the same time. And of course that can have real ben- or real harms on, uh, learning, uh, if you can't uh, maintain your attention without lots of external support, mm-hmm. uh, 
Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. One one of the areas I wanted to have you dig into a little bit more was uh, what we often associated with the negative side of uh, of um, social media, sort of people being exposed to harassing behavior, comments, yeah. or, or or fringe ideas going into uh, a really silo of ideas that's not backed up by anything. It's just sort of an echo chamber. Sure. Yeah, all those are very valid concerns as well. Um, so some of these are somewhat, and the report goes into detail in areas that I'm not expert in about a lot of the technical things of algorithms and the affordances of social media that do in fact do that. They, they can easily amplify uh, voices that are not backed by science. Uh, we think about the whole anti-vax movement. Uh, and then once you've liked a certain post or spent time on it, often the media will then feed you more and more and more to the point where you're getting lots of this information that really overrepresents uh, what what this, <laughs> you know what and, it is out in the world. Right. And 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 Doug, it I mean the effect it has on me, it makes you once you go get into this, I don't know, YouTube algorithm or whatever uh, algorithm you're in, it makes you think, at least maybe on an unconscious level, that everybody thinks that way. Yeah, exactly, because that's what you're seeing. Uh, most, you know, one way of thinking about this is humans in general are all kind of naive scientists, by which I mean that we don't usually just accept things on one hearing. We want to hear something usually about three times. And if we hear it from three different people, we start believing, oh, that must be yeah. true. And that's actually a pretty good way of going through the world, except when we're talking about modern media, which are so manipulated to make sure you hear the same thing over and over, yeah. uh, that then uh, it can seem like everyone agrees on this, even well, though that's not at all true. Yeah. A great example of this is just the number of people in our country, tens of uh, millions, uh, believing that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. Um, that you, you again and again, you see media interviews with people just saying, well, why do you believe that it was rigged? And they'll say, well, because I cannot fathom the idea that he lost with all the support. And social media would feed into the formation of that very solid idea. There is no way Trump could have lost. Oh, definitely. And, and so the, as we're looking to the world to try to understand it, we are doing all the right things, basically. We're trying to gather information, but what we don't recognize is how filtered that information is by the time it gets to us, how much it's controlled by people who think it'll make them money <laughs> rather than mm -hmm. necessarily providing uh, you know, a really uh, unbiased uh, you know, set of facts. And that's why, if I can plug you, that's why public media and <laughs> public news are so important because... They don't need to be beholden to corporate overlords to make sure that they're bringing in enough profit. All right. And if you hear something you disagree with, then we like to say we're doing our job. <laughs> we're, not, we're, we're, trying, we're trying to give alternative uh, views here. Uh, in, in a minute or so before we go to break, uh, pick up on, you, you mentioned sleep. Uh, very strong evidence there that uh, sleep can be terribly disrupted for our youth, right? Yeah, and that's perhaps the strongest, where the strongest science is at, at this point, is that social media definitely disrupts sleep. They disrupt it in many ways uh, that you may stay on too long, 
that of course just by staring at a screen in that hour before bed that actually uh, makes it harder to fall asleep that uh, many teens sleep with their phones in their bed with them or right next to it and so and they don't turn all their notifications off so it buzzes and wakes them up and they look at it or they you know, wake up extra early just so they can spend more time with it and sleep is important for almost everything in human health physical the health older and you get the, the more wise you are about that one you can't <laughs> short yourself on sleep and expect to to feel good or perform well whatever your tasks are during the day doug gentile we have to take a short break we'll be back with uh, doug distinguished professor of psychology at isu member of a committee behind a recent national academy's consensus study examining current research about social media's effects on mental and physical health of young people and uh, when we come back, uh, even though this study does, this report does not focus on it, I want to ask uh, Doug about some advice for parents, key takeaways based on the science we know about um, uh, social media, uh, its effects on young people. Now, it's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. What we do and don't know about social media and adolescent health, the focus of this portion of the program. Doug Gentile is with us, distinguished professor of psychology at Iowa State University. He was a member of a committee um, behind a recent report, National Academy's consensus study examining uh, research on social media's effects on mental and physical health of young people. Uh, so much in this uh, report, but I, I, you touched on it earlier. I wanted to have you expand on um, the passive versus active use of social media. Uh, you can be passively scrolling, soaking it up, or actively posting. Uh, what are the differences there in terms of possible benefits and harms? Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, this is one of the things where you know, the science is not clear. Uh, but there does seem to be some evidence that if most of your social media use is just you know, sitting there scrolling, that tends to be uh, associated with more of the problems of, uh, that can come along with social media, depression, uh, loneliness, social comparison, body image, things like mm -hmm. that. Uh, if, however, you are doing more posting yourself or creating and posting, that tends to be associated with some more of the benefits. So, again, the science is not strong in this. This is not something that's, you know, that we can say we know uh, this is really what's happening. But it, that does seem to be one of the things that, uh, again, makes it hard to say, you know, are social media good or bad? Mm -hmm. Well, it's the, uh, <laughs> yeah. a lot of it does depend on how you're using them. Right. The report also says, and you touched on body dissatisfaction, the, while middle school girls have been found to experience social anxiety and body dissatisfaction and depression through social media by the comparing themselves to others, 
There are ways to lessen these negative effects. Can you tell us anything about that? If you're, you know, (laughs) Facebook can have the effect of if you just check in with it at any age, you can say, well, everybody's having just a wonderful time in life. And um, and by comparison, maybe I'm not. Yeah, I think uh, humans are social beings and one of the things that happens is when we look at someone else, we just are automatically comparing. <laughs> we don't even necessarily right. know we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And so as we scroll through social media, uh, it's, uh, and it's not just social media. I mean, uh, we've known for 30 years that, uh, you know, adolescent women who uh, look at say glamor magazines feel worse about themselves. You know, the more you look at supermodels, the worse you feel about yourself, <laughs> the mm-hmm. higher risk for eating disorder. So in a sense, Social media aren't different from any of these other media, but uh, they're perhaps a little little more ubiquitous in that we carry them in our pockets in the same way we don't usually carry an issue of Vogue uh, (laughs) around with us. And so uh, how do we mitigate that? Well, that's tough because it's just a natural psychological process to compare uh, things as we are looking around the world. But certainly, I think one of the things that we could be doing a lot better job with is uh, digital media literacy. And once we start teaching uh, children about how these, first of all, how the media are designed to uh, have certain effects and also to recognize that we are going to compare ourselves whether or not we're trying to, then we can take some steps to mitigate that harm. Mm What stand out to you and the other members of the committee specifically when we look at different youth demographic groups? The harms are different and the benefits are different, can be different depending on the backgrounds of the teens, right? Yeah, we find that uh, often, uh, and this is not surprising in many respects, we see this in lots of different areas, that a lot of the uh, most disadvantaged youth or highest risk groups are even higher risk. Uh, So uh, minorities tend to spend more time on social media as well as uh, traditional media. Uh, And so as you go up in income, in fact, time on these goes down. So we're basically putting the people who are already at most risk at higher risk. Um, With specific disadvantaged groups uh, uh, like uh, LGBTQ uh, groups, uh, the effects can be pretty complex. We seem to find that uh, as they're using more social media and therefore probably connecting more with others uh, for support, their risk of a depression goes down, but the risk of being bullied goes up. <laughs> mm. uh, so again, it's uh, it's a complex world out there. Yeah, and then, I mean, I guess you know, you said building a sense of community on one of the positive sides, but that has a you know that has a ceiling right we we know people each of us know people in our lives that really seem to validate themselves get affirmation from social media exclusively and if that's working for them on any given day they they feel really good but you you can be too dependent on that right oh definitely uh, i think you know anytime we're making the assumption that our happiness depends on our external world then, of course, our moods are going to you know, swing wildly up and down as the world changes around us. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> uh, and I think this is, a, you know, this is a typical human way of thinking, but I think it's even more true for adolescents. 
Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about the report's recommendations. As a country, uh, what steps can we take that will ma- help us maximize the benefits of social media while minimizing potential harms, especially to young people? Sure. So there are several groups of recommendations in this report. Some of them uh, are on the technological side uh, and directed more towards a lot of the companies that uh, create the social media, things that they could be doing uh, to support adolescent health better. Some are on training and education. Some are about how we should be having better reporting strategies for online harassment, bullying, uh, sexual harassment, things like that. And then there are reports about uh, funding for uh, more research on this. The recommendations that I'm proudest of in this report are the ones around education. And there are three recommendations there. The first one being that the U.S. Department of Education should be trying to uh, promote uh, states doing comprehensive digital media literacy. Uh, And so when I moved to Iowa in 2003, the words media literacy were in the educational code here, but they weren't well defined. So teachers didn't really have to do anything. They're now not even in the code anymore. We've been going backwards as a state on this as digital Hmm. media And and do you know why that was taken out? I do not know. I'm not even exactly sure when it happened, but it's at least uh, about 10 years ago now. So as media have become more important, we're actually doing less. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, There are some standards in the code about technological literacy and financial literacy and things like that are certainly related. But I think if, uh, if we think about the training that we give teens before we allow them to drive a car, uh, it's, it's pretty intense <laughs> and they have to have a test to make sure that, you know, that they can operate it safely because it can affect their health greatly and, and, and that of others. But do we give them any training before handing them a mobile device? And the answer tends to be not much and certainly not yeah. in any really thoughtful way. And that's a really important issue because when we look at a cell phone, most people think of it as a, you know, as a phone or a way to connect with people. But really what it is, is a key. It is, uh, any smartphone is a key to all the information in the world, which includes all of the world's wonders and all of the world's horrors. And why is it we don't do some basic training with kids so that they can understand what you know? What that key opens and the doors it opens, so that they can be a little uh, more careful and thoughtful about how they do it, so that they are maximizing the yeah. benefits while minimizing the harms. Do you see, Doug, that education and training here uh, improving on that for teachers, for physicians? That does that have a controversial side here? Because when you're when you're talking about that, you're 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 trying to frame content, you're trying to filter content, and doesn't that inevitably get to areas like, well, who decides what is how it is framed and how it is filtered, right? Sure. Well, and and this is something that you know educators are well used to dealing with. <laughs> is you know how do we uh, provide information in a way. Uh, that's not only age appropriate for the kids, but is respectful of what is known, what isn't known, and that there can be multiple viewpoints. Uh, so I, I'm not worried about that. Where, you know, I've been involved in the media literacy world in the U.S. for 
you know, since the 1990s. And we've made basically no progress since then. And part of the reason, and I think what your question you know, gets at a little bit, is why is it even the people who care about media literacy can't agree right, <laughs> what, it, <exactly. laughs> yeah. what it is they're teaching? And, uh, you know, I think I historically, I'm not sure this is as true today, but historically, uh, media literacy groups have kind of formed into two camps. One that says all we should be teaching is literacy. How do you read icons? How do you use a computer? Mm -hmm. And the other says, uh, and, and I'm on this side clearly, no, once we know that there are uh, issues that are about health, we need to tell people about that. And, and the first camp kind of say, well, no, we shouldn't be getting into values. And my feeling as a scientist is things aren't all value neutral. Once we find out that people can be addicted, say, to games and social media, we should tell them that, <laughs> not just say, uh, you know, here's how you use these things. Yeah. So there have been these historical battles within the media literacy community. I don't know that they're really what's holding us back. I think it's, it's far more the practical things that even uh, when we say, well, children need this, it's unclear who's going to do it. Yeah. Uh, what teacher's doing it? How are they integrating it into their existing curricula? Are they getting the training they need to be able to teach it? Because we teach science teachers how to teach science, and we teach English teachers how to teach English, but most uh, teachers haven't been taught about digital you know, media literacy themselves, so they don't know how to teach it. So I think that's part of the problem is it's just become another unfunded mandate in the school. So we, our second recommendation is we need to actually have mechanisms to make sure teachers mm. know how to teach this and feel competent doing it. Yeah. We have about five minutes left. We could talk all day about this report in several days, actually, Doug, Doug, <laughs> but let's get into some concrete advice for parents. But starting with what you just mentioned, uh, um, you know, what are some signs of problematic use, signs sure. of addiction to social media that a parent might um, want to watch for? Right. Well, I think what parents tend to see are things like uh, their children retreating uh, from their previously enjoyed activities. So they stop doing as many sports or as hobbies or being in clubs or things that they used to enjoy, and they start retreating to spending far more time just in front of a screen. Uh, there tends to be a little bit of a sex difference that boys tend to be more uh, focused on the video gaming side. Girls tend to be a little more focused on the social media side. But uh, it, it looks like these may be you know, the same psychological principles underlying both of these types of addictions. Uh, the, uh, the other thing parents often will see is, uh, you know, a drop in school performance, perhaps, uh, perhaps more moodiness, uh, and, uh, and more refusal just to do things with the family. The way psychologists, uh, and psychiatrists uh, tend to define these things, however, is based on dysfunction. Are you using the media in a way that actually starts damaging your life and damaging it in multiple areas, your family functioning, your emotional functioning, mm -hmm. your school functioning, your occupational functioning, uh, your emotional functioning? Uh, when uh, any, And that's basically how we define any addiction, uh, that it, you know, just doing something a lot doesn't mean you're addicted. It has to be doing it in such a way that you start seeing real harms in other important areas of your life. Yeah. 
Um, other other advice in this report, co-viewing and active mediation, dis- not only watch it with your teens, but discuss it in depth here. I wanted to skip ahead to, to sort of where uh, you see your area of research uh, going. Uh, the report calls for a better understanding of social media's influence on the development of young people. Where do we, Doug, uh, lack understanding in your view? What are the biggest well, unanswered questions here? The, the biggest unanswered questions described in the report are that we don't know what all the causal mechanisms are. So we can find out that, yes, a, for example, a greater use of social media among teens often is related to greater depression, for example. But why is that? What's exactly happening that's, uh, that are the causal mechanisms there? So there's where basically the science, uh, we don't know all the whys, uh, which means it's also harder to give very specific recommendations for how to fix things. So that's, uh, you know, that's I think, where the science needs to move. For me personally, I'm uh, very interested in the addiction side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the American Psychiatric Association maintains a book called the DSM, the Diagnostic or Statistical Manual, which is basically how mental health disorders get defined uh, and coded in, in medical records and things like that. Uh, social media addiction, video game addiction are not yet in it. Uh, video game, uh, game or, you know, the way it's termed as internet gaming disorder uh, in the DSM-5 is there as a condition warranting further study. So when the next edition of the DSM comes out, and I'm not sure how when that'll be, probably four years or so, um, I would like to have these in as bona fide mental health disorders because until that happens, insurance won't pay for treatment. So lots of people are having problems but not getting treated yet. Mm-hmm. So that's where a lot of my focus is. When we talk about addiction, you know, comparing it to other substances, uh, are people certain types of people predisposed to being more addicted to social media than others? We don't know is, is the correct scientific answer. Uh, sometimes people talk about, you know, an addictive personality, but there doesn't seem to be strong scientific support for that idea. Uh, we, it does seem that adolescence, however, may be a somewhat more critical time for these things. Uh, and that's a lot to do with how the brain is developing, that the adolescent brain is hypersensitive to uh, dopamine for rewards, basically. So they become, so teens become much more focused on you know, what's going to be exciting, right? But the part of the brain that is good at figuring out, and what are the consequences of that, yeah. <laughs> is lagging way behind. <laughs> now that takes another 10 years for that part of the brain to, to, to mature. Uh, and so teens are basically all gas and no brakes. And then if they get uh, introduced to addictive substances, uh, that certainly, uh, they're at higher risk, I think, just because they are so focused on rewards and not enough focused on risks. And that's not, you know, that's not their fault. That's just what the teenage brain is like. Yeah. We've run out of time. Fascinating work. Um, You're reporting on Doug Gentile, Distinguished Professor of Psychology at Iowa State University. He's a member of a committee behind a recent National Academy's consensus study examining current research about social media's effects on the mental and physical health of young people. Doug, thank you for coming into our studio, and we look forward to uh, discussing your future research with you as well. Take care. Thanks, Ben. 
Coming up in just a moment, a home state view of Ron DeSantis, Matt Dixon, a conversation I had with him, senior national political correspondent for NBC based in Florida, when we return. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Now another installment of our series, Home State View. In this series, we're aiming for a bit of a different angle on these candidates than is given by the typical week-by-week press coverage that we all consume. So the focus not on their latest policy pronouncements or (laughs) disparaging remarks about other candidates in the race or slogans or gaffes. Rather, it's a chance for us to talk and discuss uh, their family and political roots uh, to get to know these political figures by talking with journalists from their home states. That's the name of our series, Home State View. Today, our focus is on the current GOP presidential candidate and Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. Joining us to do that, Matt Dixon. He's based in Tallahassee. He's currently senior national political correspondent for NBC, formerly Politico's Florida bureau chief. He has an upcoming book called Swamp Monsters, Trump versus DeSantis, the greatest show on earth. Matt Dixon, welcome to our program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, let's start more or less at the beginning. Recount Ron DeSantis's early political career, that the steps that took him to the point where he ran for governor. Yeah, well, the, the moment that, that Ron DeSantis really sort of got discovered politically was the early stages of sort of the Tea Party movement in the 2008-2009 sort of sort of space, the 2008 election cycle. He had, in very Ron DeSantis style, written a book sort of poking fun at former President Barack Obama, and it was self-published. It didn't sell a lot, but he was driving around to various Tea Party events um, trying to sell his book, and a, a political consultant happened to be at one of those events sort of heard the way he, he sort of knew how to talk to the, the conservative base of the Republican Party. He gave a good speech trying to sell his book. And pretty much it was a, during a redistricting process and there was potentially going to be some open congressional seats. So this this consultant asked DeSantis if he wanted to run for Congress functionally at a, at a, at a book event. And DeSantis always had. He's, he's always been politically ambitious. Uh, I, I, people that I've talked to for, for the book and for other reasons have talked about how he's looked in the mirror and always seen a president looking back, even in his early days. So he uh, he jumped at the opportunity and, and ran for a congressional seat uh, along the uh, the Atlantic coast, just south of Jacksonville. He, uh, he served three terms there, uh, relatively uneventful. He was kind of a backbencher type, but he did get on Fox News a lot and uh, defended President Trump during the Russia probe. And that sort of got him on Trump's radar. And he uh, he very ably used Fox News to sort of get into Trump's good graces by defending him during the Russia stuff. And that's really, you know, what got him a little bit of rocket fuel in the sense that, as I'm sure some of your listeners know, Trump endorsed DeSantis when he ran for governor. And that really sort of helped him helped him win that race when he was kind of an underdog at certain points. And that endorsement in 2018 is something that the former president doesn't uh, let Ron DeSantis forget about, right? <laughs> Well, not anymore. Um, when they were when they were best buds, it didn't come up as much. But now that they're sort of both running for the, the presidency and their rivalry is sort of open, uh, 
it's definitely something President Trump likes to hold over him and, and remind DeSantis of quite frequently. Yeah. Um, let's talk about what we know nationally of Ron DeSantis, well, how he came into sort of national prominence, uh, especially during the pandemic. What is he known for there in that context? Yeah, he, he during the pandemic, he sort of became the for conservatives across the country, the sort of the aspirational idea of what a Republican governor should be. And that's because he took a very hands off approach to pandemic response. No vaccine mandates, no mask mandates. He actually sued cities and mayors who tried to put in their own mitigation strategies. And that really helped them catch fire with conservatives who who sort of, you know, very oftentimes didn't didn't really believe the pandemic was a pandemic and, and are vaccine skeptics. So his approach during that period of time is really what made him a national name in Republican politics. Mm-hmm. And also he w- was reelected by a large margin, primarily because of these uh, COVID policies. To, to a degree, that's what made him very popular. But uh, but Florida Democrats here have really kind of collapsed. He didn't have a lot of opposition. So it's a combination of DeSantis being a very popular with Republicans and a national figure that that really helped him steamroll the opposition. But in the 2022 midterms, there really wasn't a ton of opposition. So it's hard to overstate how big of a he won by almost 20 points. And, and Florida is known for statewide elections that are, you know, often go to recounts and are very, very close. So his margin is historic here. And it speaks to both his popularity, to, to your point, but also he didn't have that great of opposition for his reelection. Mm-hmm. And we have to point out in the context of talking about his COVID policies, he shares these to a great degree. At least they talk about it. And, and um, Governor Reynolds here of Iowa endorsed Ron DeSantis. It's been a few weeks since that endorsement came. But they like to pat each other on the back for the, the leadership they provided during the pandemic, don't they? Oh, certainly. I, I think that's kind of what drew the two of them together. And and, and Governor Reynolds, is, as you guys know, had spent a lot of time campaigning with DeSantis even before the formal endorsement, sort of signaling that's what she was going to do. And I, I think patting on the back is, is certainly a good way to phrase it, because uh, DeSantis is still kind of running heavily on his COVID record. He talks about it a lot. He's really one of the only candidates who still talks about the, the height of the pandemic. And I think that that certainly jives well with the policies that that you know Governor Reynolds advocated and, and put into place uh, up up in Iowa. Okay, so that endorsement came several. I'm what I'm remembering, middle early October, something like that. But it's been several weeks, and a lot of polling has come out since that endorsement. Um, uh, still, Ron DeSantis in Iowa widely underperforming expectations. What do you have to say about that? What conclusions do you draw there? It, to me, it, it just speaks to the the dominance that Trump still has over the Republican primary electorate. Um, I think ordinarily getting a an early state governor in any of the early nominating contests, Iowa very much included, getting a gubernatorial endorsement, especially for a popular governor, would be huge. It would be a, a, a massive sort of swing in momentum that you would, you know, hopefully be able to see to some degree in polling. And that just hasn't been the case with with DeSantis. And that's why I don't know if it has anything to do necessarily with the governor herself or or what DeSantis is doing. To me, it just speaks to how immovable Trump is right now with Republican primary voters that I'm not sure there's anything that any candidates can do um, in, in, in any of the early states where there's regular public polling to sort of chip into his lead. That people will move back and forth a couple points here or there, but it's it's a pretty massive, insurmountable lead at the moment. And I, it's hard to see something changing that. 
If you've just joined us, Matt Dixon is with me this portion of the program. Uh, He's currently senior national political correspondent for NBC. Let's uh, go back to what was mentioned earlier. Ron DeSantis uh, in 2018 endorsed by uh, then-President Trump. Uh, DeSantis elected governor for the first time, then in 2022 uh, overwhelmingly re-elected uh, to the governorship of Florida. But let's go back to the Trump-DeSantis relationship. And a, a question that we have for a lot of our, for all of our GOP presidential candidates is, the sort of tightrope or line that they're walking when it comes to Trump and the concerns that even some in the Republican Party have about uh, what has been termed um, the former president's authoritarian tendencies. How does Ron DeSantis navigate that? He doesn't navigate it so much as he kind of agrees with it. And just on Monday, he was asked about this in an interview, and he, to, to some degree, said, when Trump was president, he didn't go far enough or didn't take some advantage of, of the constitutional authority that he has. He was specifically speaking to some of the January 6th rioters who, um, is, is, is Governor DeSantis, I forget the exact phrasing, but essentially he said the January 6th rioters who didn't, you know, do, do commit acts of violence should have been pardoned by Trump. And there's a few other examples, but he doesn't he doesn't frame it in in a way or use language in a way that he thinks Trump did anything wrong. So DeSantis isn't really trying to navigate the issue like like some other politicians are. He's sort of leaning into to what Trump did and saying that, you know, he could have even gone further in some instances. Mm-hmm. Is he a flat out election 2020 election denier as the former president certainly is? He towed that line very, very well. Well, well might be the wrong term. But he, he towed the line there. He never sh- came straight out and said it, and he has called Biden president. So he's not a total denier, but early, especially when Trump and DeSantis were still at least publicly on, on the same page and they were still seen as political allies, DeSantis would kind of run some cover for him. And he's also passed several, signed several uh, pieces of legislation in Florida that were, were seen as sort of um, aimed at, at placating Trump from a from an election integrity standpoint, as they call it. So he signed these bills into law that that you know made it uh, more difficult to vote in many cases, and, and did some things of that nature. And he kind of always kept Trump off of his his back in that regard, even though he's never totally embraced that conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt, dig into the acrimony that has developed between these two, Trump and DeSantis, once allies, and now um, there's some pretty choice words the former president has had for Ron DeSantis, aren't there? Yeah, it appears that Donald Trump, uh, this is kind of as much personal as political. And, and from everything we can see, Trump doesn't just want to beat him in this race. He kind of wants to end his political career. I mean, DeSantis, as you had mentioned, is is drastically underperforming his his campaign's expectations, the expectations they have at the beginning. He's not really seen as a threat to Trump right now, but Trump goes after him more than anyone else. He attacks him near daily. His campaign actually has a specific daily email that just comes with Ron DeSantis attacks and and Nikki Haley in, in many polls, the, the former South Carolina governor, is pulling ahead of DeSantis. He, she is, in theory, a bigger threat to Trump, but doesn't get near as much sort of vitriol and attacks. And the, the relationship has gone from allies to enemies in a really, really big way. And at this point, it, it, it almost feels kind of personal. 
Mm-hmm. You pivoted exactly where I want to go to Nikki Haley because uh, the, the 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 barbs uh, uh, between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis have been clear to see for weeks now, uh, as they seem to, if we are to believe our polls, uh, fighting for uh, second in Iowa's caucuses. Uh, what kind of challenge has Nikki Haley's recent momentum had for the DeSantis campaign? Well, she's done a really good job in the first few debates. That's what sort of elevated her uh, her, her performance. She was seen as sort of the quote-unquote winner, and, and that got her a lot of attention. And what started happening after that and what has really kind of mattered from her is she started pulling more of the sort of anti-Trump or never-Trump donors in the Republican Party. So while Trump has a commanding polling lead, there's still many Republican donors who would like to move on. And those two were sort of jockeying for that that slice of the money. Many of those have started to go to Nikki Haley. So Haley had some really good debate performances. She's picked up some some significant endorsements, and now she's sort of picking up more of the never Trump Republican donors. And that's really given her a little wind at her back um, at compare, as she sort of jockeys with 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 DeSantis. Yeah, and and she's taken a bit a different take than DeSantis on January sixth on election election denialism, hasn't she? Yeah, and I think that's why she has gained some of the the wealthy Republican donors who are want to move on from Trump. I would say they're more sort of traditional pre-Trump Republicans um, who who don't like to dabble in some of that stuff. And the fact that she's had seen having kind of softer edges on some of those issues, I think, has made her appealing to, like I kind of say, pre-Trump Republicans. Yeah. Ron DeSantis's uh, political operation has suffered a series of major setbacks. Uh, the, the group uh, never backed down. The super PAC formed to help him take on Donald Trump and serve as a, as a shadow campaign with his, a huge war chest uh, and influential political team. Another key leader we heard just days ago um, departing. I, I think that's the, the sixth, according to the report that I saw. What's, what is going on with his political operation? Well, yeah, there's there's been for a month or so on the super PAC side. So not necessarily the campaign itself, even though there have been sort of intermingled this election cycle. But on the super PAC side itself, there was a a gentleman named Jeff Rowe, a longtime Republican operative who had been running it for a long time. Um, The campaign and and Governor DeSantis and his team sort of uh, were upset with, with some of the steps they took and some of DeSantis is more uh, sort of his allies, his inner circle types were installed at that super PAC. And that sort of led to a bit of a circular firing squad, some internal political jockeying and, and sort of palace intrigue. And ultimately, the DeSantis, uh, the more aligned DeSantis group ultimately won out. Uh, the guy who had been running for a very long time recently resigned. And that's sort of the the long and short of, of the, the tumult that has been at uh, DeSantis's $200 million super PAC. Mm-hmm. Let's focus on Iowa for the final uh, two or three minutes here of our conversation. What do the Iowa caucuses on January 15th mean for the DeSantis campaign? Uh, of course, after Iowa, we we uh, go to New Hampshire, then to South Carolina, the home state of uh, Nikki Haley. Um, what are the scenarios you see that are likely or possible here in Iowa? In short, Iowa means everything to Ron DeSantis. He has done the, the 99-county tour. He has essentially moved his campaign staff there. He spends all of his time there. Um, he's, he's you know never backed down. The group we just talked about has done a ton of TV there. Um, because he has underperformed so drastically, winning or, or getting close 
a close second in that first nominating contest is huge is a signal that he can have some momentum it's a signal to donors that don't totally give up on me if he gets crushed in iowa or finishes a third or a very very distant second it's very bad news for for desantis mm-hmm. so if let's just say nikki haley beats him by five to ten percentage points very bad news very bad news. I, I don't know that I see a scenario where he would drop out immediately after, but at that point, it would be even dunner than it is already, and it's 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 looking bleak before Iowa. And so I think he would go to New Hampshire either way. And New Hampshire is not a state he's focused on much, so I don't think anyone thinks he's going to do that well there. But a, if he were to finish third in Iowa, and especially if he lost by five to ten percentage points to to Governor Haley, that would be a, a significant blow to his chances. Okay, despite recent setbacks in polling and otherwise, paint us a rosy picture, a rosy path for Ron DeSantis uh, in the next few weeks, starting with Iowa. Of course, it, even his team will acknowledge he doesn't have to win. Uh, I think they would love to see his second place by under 10 points to Trump. If they were in the 7 to 10 point loss range in Iowa, I think that would be enough for them to to sort of Say we have momentum, and, and the reason that would be helpful specifically is because that means they'd outperform public polling. Public polling has them down significantly in almost every state. Yeah. If he's to be, able, if he has the ability to outperform that public polling, he's going to go to donors, he's going to go to supporters, and say, "Look, those polls show us down in other states. Those polls show us down everywhere." But the polls are wrong, and we're doing better than the polls would predict. So we're going to keep going forward. Yeah, that's the story of the Iowa caucuses, isn't it? That you don't have to necessarily win. You have to beat expectations. It is an expectations game for sure. Yeah. Uh, in the final few seconds, Matt, what will you be watching in the final weeks before the Iowa caucuses, and then we launch into the full primary season? Uh, just just if, if he continues to stay with the intensity that he has stayed, I, I think DeSantis is for sure going to spend most of his time in Iowa. But how he navigates all of his time there versus at least, you know, sending signals out to early states will be, be interesting. All right, Matt Dixon, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Matt is senior national political correspondent for NBC. Watch for his upcoming book, Swamp Monsters, Trump versus DeSantis, the greatest show on earth. Matt, thank you so much. Thank you. Today's River to River, produced by Caitlin Troutman and Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.